do you ever get the sense that something is just not right? When you look at the world that we live in, when you see the danger, when you witness the injustice, when you witness the millions of people in our world who live under oppression, when you, when you even witness the racism in our own country, when you see the numbers of orphans, when you see the inequality between the rich and the poor, as the rich get richer and richer and the poor get poorer and poorer, as you see the condition of the families begin to fall apart, as you see so many people who struggle with just being happy and joyful from day to day, as you see the number of people of faith declining, especially in Western culture, do you sense that there's something wrong? The answer is not more knowledge. We went through the Enlightenment a century ago where knowledge exploded and American culture believed if we could just learn more and know more, then somehow that would change everything. The answer is not more money. We live in the most affluent culture in history and yet we still struggle. The answer is not government. The answer is not politics. I know I'm hitting with sort of a, a broad swipe right here. Not even go nationally. I'll just say statewide. How, how many of you, you know, grew up, you know, maybe you grew up as a Republican in a Democratic state and you wished your whole life that, that one day maybe the Democrats would be out and the Republicans would be in. Or maybe you mentioned you, you felt it different and now the Republicans have taken over. And again, this is a, a broad swipe. But the corruption is just as strong and bad today as it was before. And you had your hopes up. The answer is not government. It's not the political campaigns around us. My friends, the answer is Jesus Christ. What is needed is a revolution. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. Christianity is a revolt against the status quo. Christianity is a revolt against the status quo. Christianity comes and says there is something wrong. There are things that are not right. And Jesus has come to make the world right. And Christians are empowered as his agents. And if you're not sure about what I'm talking about, I'm inviting you to a study this morning. And I invite you to look at Luke and Acts. You may not recognize it because the people who put the Bible together made a mistake and put John in between Luke and Acts. But Luke and Acts were actually written by the same guy. Luke was a very meticulous doctor who set out to study the life of Jesus and to write a very accurate account of his life. But he also wrote a companion book called the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he shows what happens when people take Jesus for real. I put it this way. Luke is the cause material. Acts is the response material. Acts shows us what happens when people really believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. It's an amazing story. And when we get to the book of Acts, we see a revolution. Now, we've been mentioning lately that in Churches of Christ, we're part of a, a movement called the Restoration Movement, which is a back-to-the-Bible movement. And one of our big books was the book of Acts, because we'd go, we want to be the church in Acts. And if we can just find the right patterns and the right notions there, then we could be that church. But here's what I didn't hear growing up. Nobody said we wanted to be the church in Acts where people are protesting and arrested and thrown in jail most of the book. N.T. Wright sums up the book of Acts with these four words. 
Another day, another riot. The early Christians stayed in trouble because they were anti the status quo. The early Christians stayed in jail. In fact, the early Christians spent more time in jail than the FSU football team. I mean, th- I mean, they were there all the time. And sometimes we miss that when we look there. But if you look at this book of Luke and this book of Acts, you'll see this amazing movement. I guess the question we must ask this morning is what has happened? Where have we lost that revolutionary fire? The church today is looked by most people as more a part of the status quo than the answer to our problems. One Anglican bishop put it this way. Everywhere the early Christians went, they started a riot. Every church I visit, they serve tea. It's just very different. And here's what I'm saying to you this morning. We could use a return visit. So this, this morning, we're not putting the scriptures up on the, on the screens today. I want you to open your Bible. Start with me. Let's go back all the way to the beginning of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 1. Because as we look at this revolution, I want you to know that Mary was the one who was given the privilege to announce it. You remember the story when the angel comes to Mary and the angel says, you've been chosen by God. The Holy Spirit can come upon you and you're going to bear Emmanuel. Now, Mary's been through junior high biology class and her mind is blown because she doesn't understand how in the world this could happen. And yet... Mary, Mary has the right posture. When the angel announces this, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you have said. What a, what a posture of submission. And then she breaks out in song. And in this beautiful song, Mary announces the revolution. Verse 46, Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, and just as he promised our ancestors. Did you see what Mary announces here? Mary says things are going to change. It's going to be quite different. The rulers are going to be dethroned. The poor are going to be blessed. It's quite revolutionary talk here. In fact, in many countries in South America, many of the rulers in power did not like this song. And there were some countries in South America a couple of decades ago that actually banned Mary's song from being sung because it was so revolutionary. So it starts there with Mary announcing it. And then we saw last week on Easter, go to Acts chapter 2 and 3 with me, that it's the resurrection That sparked it. That when Jesus came back from the grave and ascended to heaven, something happened to his followers. 
We saw Acts chapter 2 last week when the resurrection is preached. That 3,000 people become Christians and join the revolution. In Acts chapter 3, the beginning of the chapter, we see a lame man that's healed. That sounds innocent enough. But then after the healing, Peter begins to preach. Listen to his sermon. When Peter saw this, he said, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Man, what has happened to this guy? He is so bold. This is a powerful line here, verse 15. You killed the author of life. The author of life. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know is made strong, it is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him That's completely healed this man, as you can see. He says then in verse 19, Repent then, what's he saying? And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I mean, Peter begins to preach this sermon. He's still so bold. He's still telling them the other day they made a huge mistake when they killed the Son of God. That this disturbs them. Look in Acts chapter 4, first few verses. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Look at verse 2. They were greatly disturbed. They've upset the status quo. What has upset the status quo? They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Here's our first trip to jail. The apostles begin to preach this resurrection, and it greatly disturbs the religious leaders. Why did it disturb them? Well, first of all, do you recognize what Peter's doing here? He's he's charging them with murder. Most of us don't respond very well to that. And second... He's preaching the resurrection. I don't know if you know much about the Sadducees, but the Sadducees were the sect of the Jewish faith that did not believe in life after. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they controlled the temple. And so when Peter begins to preach this, he's upsetting the status quo. And they're greatly disturbed. Now, he said, what is so disturbing about the resurrection? Two things. First of all, the resurrection means that Jesus is the Lord. It meant to the Sadducees, you dudes are going to lose control because you're no longer in charge. He's in charge. And it also meant that death is dead. Did you hear that? Death is dead. How do you keep revolutions under control? You do it the very way the leaders in Acts tried to do it. You threaten people with death. Death is the final tool of a tyrant to keep himself in power. And in the book of Acts, death is no longer powerful over these people 
because they believe that Jesus is the first of many resurrections. So the resurrection sparks this. And my friends, if you understand the implications of last of, of the resurrection, if you understand the implications of the resurrection, here's two things you got to face. It means that he is the Lord. And you don't need to control your life anymore. Because he has rights on your life. And it also means that we don't have to live life in fear. We can be fearless because we believe that death is dead. So the the next point here is this revolution. The apostles established it. Peter had learned his lesson about backing down. So they're arrested. They're brought in in chapter 4. They're threatened. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 8, here's the same guy. You're worried he's going, you know what, buddy, this is, this is revolutionary talk. I wonder, in the, I wonder if there's any way I could change. My goodness, listen to me. We got the story here. If Peter can change, you can change. You say, I'm so timid, I'm so weak. I am too. Peter was too. And yet, boy, he became so bold. Look at, look at verse 8, Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to count today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, or being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he won't let up on that, will he? But whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Talking about offensive, look at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Whoa, 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 whoa. No way we can be right with God except through Jesus Christ. That was so offensive to these Jewish leaders. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you this question? Is that still offensive today? You go in any place in our culture and you quote Acts 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved and you're going to offend some people. That is an offensive message. Peter won't back down. They threatened them with their lives. Verse 18, they called them in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to God. Tell us. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They just won't back down. And these guys are absolutely revolutionary. They're not serving tea. They're starting a riot everywhere they go. Now, now keep, keep on with the story. Next, we found out that prayer empowered it. They're released from prison. The church has been praying for them. And, and, and they go back to church, and the church has been praying And they're still under the threat of death. And we'll look at this in more detail next Sunday, but I want you to see one line. I want you to see the core of the prayer that they pray. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now, does that blow your mind a little bit? 
You know, if one of us had been jailed and imprisoned and threatened with execution, and all of a sudden you came back to church and we're all going, what happened? Well, they jailed me, man. They threatened me. Well, what are they saying? They're saying, if I don't shut up about this, they, they're going to execute me. What do you think we would pray as a church? We'd lay hands on you and we'd say, protect this guy. Save this guy. Don't let anything bad happen to him. They don't pray that. They don't pray it. They don't ask for protection and safety. They're part of a revolution. They pray, make us more bold. It's quite a scene. Prayer empowered it. And then let's say this, guys. If you read the book of Acts, it is the, it is the picture of the church. And the church leads the revolution. The church is not the status quo. The church is anti-status quo. The church is on the offensive. Jesus predicted it. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus confessed, when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus said to Peter, you're blessed, man. You got it right. And then he says, on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Have you ever called that picture? It, it's the gates of hell. They're not going to prevail. What, what, what's he saying? The church is not a scared group of people on the defensive because culture's all of a sudden gone crazy on us and let's just sort of withdraw into ourselves and protect ourselves. No, no, no. Jesus says, my church is going to be so aggressive that it is going to be attacking the gates of hell. And the church leads this amazing revolution. And that's why we love reading the book of Acts because we see that happen. The church is a called out group of people who say, no, the world is broken and we are here to be a part of its restoration. We are be a part of reconciling men to God. Something's not right and we're not the problem, we're the answer. I just ask you in passing, does that remind you of the church today? Because in the church so often, we're too busy fighting each other to fight the world. And as my friend Jonathan Stormont writes in a book that's helping me so much in this series, How to Start a Riot, he writes this, I've noticed that people that are looking for a fight, he's talking about in church, do so because they're not engaged in a bigger one. What you saying? We turn on each other and fight about all kinds of nicky-nacky issues because we're not involved in the real fight. And so the church, my friends, we must no longer sleep. Martin Luther King Jr. said, there's nothing more tragic than to sleep through a revolution. We need to spark a revolution. I'm so encouraged by so many things I, I, I see happening in this church. I think we could be that people. Last week, we, we asked you on your 
Easter on your response card, your Easter response card, to to put where you need a comeback. And, and boy, we got so many requests there. Show show that list if you would. There, there, there's a list of, of of where so many of us say our, our life needs a comeback. It's in our marriage. It's in sexual sin. It's living for self, addictions, finances, depression. And you, you, you can look at the list. I don't have to read that to you. And yes, we, we, we find ourselves, not only do we sense something's wrong out there, okay? We sense something wrong out, there's something wrong in here. In fact, let's go a little further. We sense there's something wrong in here. I think we're probably correct. We need that comeback. We need that resurrection power. But here's what really fires me up. If you remember on that card, there was also another blank to say, I want to praise God because I've experienced a comeback. And I was comparing this list to that list. And almost everything on this list of those of you who said, I need a comeback, was also on the other list of those of you who've experienced a comeback. So the revolution is going on. And there are people in this church, if you're on this list, that's all right. There are people in this church that can help you because they've been through it. And God's given them that victory through his power. So the church is the place where we experience this kind of comeback. I think, my friends, that we find ourselves today in the same place as Mary. The Lord came to her. And asked her to be a part of something absolutely crazy. A young virgin teenager to bear God. To undergo the scrutiny. To undergo the persecution. The rumors that would plague her the rest of her life. One author, Barbara Brown Taylor, writes this about Mary's choice. You are Mary. You can take part in a plan that you do not choose, doing things you do not know how to do, for reasons you don't entirely understand. You can take part in a thrilling and dangerous scheme with no script and no guarantees. I love this line. You can agree to smuggle God into the world inside your own body. Listen, Mary was a part of a subversive revolution. And her part was to smuggle, in the most inconspicuous way, was to smuggle God into the world. And my friends, that is what you and I are called to do in this revolution. We are called to smuggle God everywhere we go. So I ask you this question as we close. Where do you need to smuggle Jesus? I got a list of places up there you can see in your bulletin. Where do you need to be the bearer of Jesus? Where you come in your home, you come in your workplace, you come in this church, you go into your community, not as someone trying to keep the status quo. That's the, that's the problem with most of our churches, my brothers and sisters, is the goal of most churches is, is to not upset anybody. 
And I'm telling you, if the goal of our church is to not upset anybody, we're not going to have a revolution. So where do you need to smuggle Jesus? I read something online this week. It really convicted me. I wish we had time to address each one of these, but we don't. But this, it was an article by one of my favorite preachers, Francis Chan. And he addresses what we're talking about here. And he says, and just, just buckle up for a moment with me. He says, one of our problems is that when we get married and we have families, we put the Christian mission on the back burner. He says this, many Christians have lost their edge, their radical burning fire for Christ. Chan says that after many Christians get married, they place Christ's mission on the back burner, spending their days in the bubble of relationships, children, and the comfort of security. Chan himself, who's been married for his wife Lisa, to his wife Lisa for over 20 years, has seven children ask, could I be an example of someone who's married and has kids and is still thinking kingdom first. Your mission with the Lord doesn't end when you get married. He gives examples of how when people date or get married or have children, their focus tends to shift from standing on the front lines for Christ to pouring the majority of their time and energy into nurturing and protecting their relationships, family, and security. And then he says these words. It's not any longer about going out in the harvest and being a worker. It's about let's protect our family now. Let's keep us safe. Let's find some gated community and keep them all in our house and away from all the bad people. The preacher said that the mentality of only worrying about oneself and one family caused believers and even their children, listen closely, even their children to miss out on life. Parents, listen very closely to this line. That's why so many of our kids, when they turn 18, they just ditch God altogether. Because they didn't see anything real in your life. They didn't see a sense of adventure. And you didn't put yourself in positions where God had to come through. And then when he comes through and and where your whole family is going, you go, wow, that's amazing. I'm never going to leave that God. No, you just create a bubble for yourself. How does God operate in that? They're experiencing like a Christian version of the American dream that's watered down, and we're just making excuses for really idolizing our families rather than putting Christ in the mission first. Wow. Pretty convicting. Can I ask you this? Have you lost your revolutionary fire? Have you settled into the American dream and just protecting your family and making sure everything's okay? And we've lost that edge. See, my challenge for us today is let's relive the Acts of the Apostles. I love this book. And that's that's the title you find on it. The Acts of the Apostles. And I love... The old blind preacher 
who used to just run his hands over the Braille version of the Acts of the Apostles, and he would just pray the same prayer over and over again. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. And that's what needs to happen. We need a revolution. But let me tell you, quite frankly, we can't do it. I can tell you honestly, I can't do it. I'm not very revolutionary right now. I actually feel sort of weak. I actually wonder if it can happen. I think our problem might be that the book actually has the wrong title. I don't know who labeled it the Acts of the Apostles, but that wasn't inspired. I think if you read the book of Acts, you would change the title to not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's what the book should be called. Because God takes weak, sinful, struggling men and women, and uses them to turn the world upside down. So we're not calling you to join the revolution because you're so cool and so together. We're calling you and I to join the revolution. We're calling you and I to put ourselves in the position of Mary and say simply, Lord, I'm your servant. May it be as you have said. I'm not much, and I don't have much going for me. And actually, I feel sort of weak about this thing. And yes, I am disturbed by what's going on in the world, what's going on in my own life, but, 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 but I'm yours. And, and now I just want to be a part of smuggling Jesus into some situations where he's not. But there ain't no way I can do it without your power. So once again, Lord, do it again. Do it again through your Holy Spirit, ignite a revolution that will not stop. My friends, I'm inviting you to be a part of this revolution. If you've never become a Christian, they're coming in the chapters we've been going over. It's 3,000, 5,000, 10,000. It's exploding. Could it explode here today? If you've never become a Christian, could today be the day that you're born again? If you join the revolution and you can remember a point in your life, maybe before you got married, where you were so on fire and radical for God, but you've lost it. You've lost it. And you want to rejoin the revolution. That's what I'd like to do today. Why don't we pray for each other? So if you need to come, why don't you come while we stand together and sing?